Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Good morning. I'm testing the mic a little too. Can you hear me? Yeah? Good. My name is Harriet Huey Ranvig, as you know, and it is my joy and pleasure to share some time with you this morning. And it's curious, I would like to say I have been physically blind since I was 12 years old. And I did pick this previous hymn quite consciously because, of course, for millennia, the verbs see and the noun blind have been a part of not only the physical world, but our inner worlds in great measure. Uh, My original title has altered just a bit. It's called Blind Spots. Let's play and dance with the unknown. Now, one of the curious things that I must bring forth in speaking with you this morning is that, in truth, I find this disability of mine, being blind, a very strange and wonderful space to live in. Uh, The appearance in the regular world is it's a tragic loss. However, I have discovered many hidden benefits. And one one of them is the opportunity to receive enormous amounts of random compassion as I walk through the world. So this is one of the one way to consider to look at blind spots. I've been considering the matter for quite some time. And I think in our inner worlds, what we're really speaking about is learning something about the unknown. The first part that I wanted to think about with you is what constitutes a blind spot? We're all aware of the car analogy, where there's a part of your, all the mirrors you have, there'll still be a spot where a car might creep up on you and you wouldn't see it. And it's a good image in a way, it's a metaphor for our lives and how things can come upon us or life seems to happen in unexpected ways. Now, all of us from early childhood learn, oh, if you, if you want to be capable in life, You have to get all this knowledge and skill and be able to make a living. And the more you know, the better. Because then you'll be able to predict and strategize for the minimum of mistakes and failures. Now, every one of us sitting here knows that we've all learned quite a lot in life. And we all hear, oh, teacher, you know, experience is our best teacher. However, all of us get confronted with situations in life. The loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, having to move to a new place where you know no one, 
so many ways in which we have to confront something we don't understand, something we don't know. And the usual sort of response we have as human creatures related to the animal world is fear and survival. And yet, the gift of being a human being offers something larger. These blind spots of ours, they have all kinds of range of absurd and wonderful and tragic and difficult. I have a dear friend who recently was spending time after a long time with an elderly aunt in Atlanta. And she has two adorable, feisty, alive children, two boys, four and eight. Well, they'd had a long afternoon of playing, and the Legos and toys were all over the floor. And my friend was thinking, oh my goodness, I have so little chance to meet with my aunt. I hope she doesn't think I'm the worst parent in the world. I'm sure the kids are going to give me a hard time when we're trying to clean up. And at that moment, her adult cousin said, hey boys, let's have a race to clean things up. And in moments, the whole floor was cleared neatly and nicely. My friend reflected and said to herself, hmm, why didn't I think of that? And then the follow-up thought was, oh, I know why. I was sure they'd see through it as a trick and it wouldn't work anyway. And these are the kinds of things we get programmed into assuming that responses are going to be a particular way, that life is going to be a particular way. But what helps us, what shifts us from being stuck in the dark clouds of our difficulties? You know, they say there's a silver lining in a dark cloud, but when you're in the middle of it, you can't tell it's there. All you know is you're uncertain. You're lost. You're in pain. So what can shift our eye sense? Is it when someone really is willing to listen to us in our pain and in our misery? Really listen? until the heart empties out? Is it when we're suddenly called upon to serve someone who's in great need? Is it when we accept service and care when we are in great need? Or could it be when we've tried and tried all solutions and nothing's working, and we just surrender to the way life is, and it isn't. Well, I have a story concerning my own projections of difficulty. A month or so ago, after 10 years of having situated my study in the second floor of my house in a very small room, with hundreds and hundreds of cassettes and CD, CDs and books and so forth, I planned to move my study to a more spacious room on the third floor. But I was confronted with how in the world will I be able to keep the tenuous order that I've established, and tenuous it was. To my great good fortune, through the Cambridge Time Trade Circle, I found a lovely woman 
who said she'd like to work with me. I could tell from the conversation that we had great rapport. She came for a couple of days for a few hours. We laughed, we worked hard together. She described things beautifully, and she did the heavy lifting. And believe it or not, I had a beautiful study. Not perfectly organized, but sufficiently that I could turn on my computer, that I could find the things that I most needed. And I thanked her warmly. I said, Amy, you've done an amazing job with me. She laughed easily, and she said, I'm glad it worked. She said, it was fun, and it was easy, and the job is done. This points to something that most of us don't think about in contributing and being with other people. That which comes most easily to us, the way of being, not the way of doing, that which comes most easily is virtually invisible to us. You could call it a positive blind spot, but I gently admonish all of us when someone acknowledges you, or me, or compliments for gifts that we've given, especially the intangible ones, try to let it soak in like rain on a parched desert. Because our inner critic is exceptionally violent and powerful. I'm sure you know what I mean. The one that says, oh, did it wrong again. Oh, you're late again. Oh, you know that one? And so this is one of another area of the unseen, of the unnoticed. And another area to consider is this, the actual journey from being lost, desolate and afraid, is often internal. And the cause for the shift is not necessarily totally obvious to us. I have a very dear friend for many years named Peter. And he told me, we began to speak about blind spots. He said, my blind spots are the expectations that I put on life. And so often I discover that they trip me up and I can't really relate to life in a straight way. So my practice is to try to notice them as fast as those expectations start to strangle me and give them up. Peter was finishing his undergrad music training. He's a wonderful, talented flutist. He had had teachers and courses in every aspect of playing flute, sound production, and technique of all kinds, and repertoire. But Peter, as he was finishing the last semester, was beset with great anxiety. He didn't feel prepared to go out and play and be professional because he felt so fragmented. He knew all the parts of being a good musician, but he didn't feel like a whole musician. And after days and weeks of tormented thought about this, one morning he woke up and it struck him that indeed he had everything he needed. And he was complete. 
And then it was clear to him which graduate school he would go to, and he was accepted to Yale. And when he got to Yale, he met Tom, a most extraordinary flute teacher, most extraordinary. And Peter reveled in his teaching and grew and developed in his music. They became very dear friends over the years. They even took, for a short period, lived together. Some 10 years after that, Peter received a devastating phone call from Tom's life partner. She, through hysterical tears, told him that Tom had hung himself. Peter was devastated, heartbroken, crushed. The grief just soaked him through and through. He thought of all the students Tom had taught and all the students that Tom could have taught. And he could not shake the grief and the constriction in his heart, not just for days or weeks, but for months and year or more. And then one moment, while he had to continue his life, he was teaching a student. And he felt a smile creeping over his face and joy well up in him. He realized he had just given an instruction, a direction that Tom had given him. And in that moment, he realized and felt and experienced that Tom is present. Present in all of his teaching and his loving way of being with people. And that Peter and all Tom's students, former students, were instruments and channels for Tom's gifts. This is a great gift because death for most of us is so finite, so very much an end. But in Peter's revelation, we really experience the infinite. A teacher and student relationship are quite extraordinary because when it's a very powerful relationship, you know, there's admiration and inspiration and a willingness to be curious, to learn. And a good teacher is always learning from students too. I teach music as well. Now, our families, sorry to say, it's another matter. You know, I know my mother, she's always this way. And my sister-in-law, she's that way. And my brother, you can always count on him being late, and so forth and so on. And also our work colleagues. My boss can't, shouldn't talk to him before 10 o'clock in the morning. You know how we formulate these very hard and fast uh, beliefs about who people are in our lives. Well, I have such a tale as well. My brother and his wife, Shelley, moved many years ago to South Africa as Baha'i pioneers. And in 2000, I got the news, we all got the news that my sister-in-law, Shelley, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Well, we were shocked and very distressed to hear this. 
However, it galvanized me to go to South Africa for the first time. My brother had been there for 19 years, and not, neither my two elder sisters nor I had ever visited. That impact began to hit me. So I flew to South Africa by myself, and I was welcomed like the prodigal sister. Dinners were held for me and all this. And Shelley, my sister-in-law, now, it's kind of hard to confess this, but I have to admit part of my reason and my hesitance in going to South Africa before this was because Shelley was a bit on the argumentative, critical, angry, pushy, judgmental side. And I just didn't like it. I just didn't want to be around that at all. And as embarrassing it is now to think that I thought that way, that's how I thought. And then my sisters thought the same thing. And you know how your family will reinforce opinions? You know, like that. I had that view. But who I found in Shelley when I went to South Africa was a gentle, open, curious, exploring person. She was really going after learning what she could do for her health. She shared with me that the bitter anger that she had had all through her life, especially because her father was a gambler and abandoned her mother and her grandfather did the same, she was carrying a load of anger and frustration and bitterness. And she told me, I know the anger and bitterness doesn't do me any good. And I found that with meditation, she said, and with just caring for and loving myself, some of this has begun to shift for me. And I could sure feel the shift. None of that critical, argumentative, hurtful side of her speaking was there. And it also, I got to observe a transformation in my brother. Three years later, my, I met my brother in Ohio where Shelley was receiving treatment and his daughter, who is just recently married. Now my brother, speaking of opinions about my brother, highly trained anthropologist who dropped out of Harvard before finishing his PhD, and kind of grew up in Georgia where we all grew up, and unconsciously a bit of an entitled male. You know, food should be brought to him, etc., etc. His work was very important. But whom I met in my brother in 2003 summer was a man who was committed, devoted to tender caregiving of his wife. Caregiving, she could not eat for months, was on a total nutrition program, so his daughter and he cared for her. It allowed her to paint, to read, and to write. She was a painter and a sculptor. And I forgot to mention that Shelley and my brother founded a school uh, a little preschool for multiracial, for all children of all races in South Africa. And throughout the course of her illness, until the very end, and even then, she was either training new teachers, but keeping a deep interest in the school and in all other people. And so the lovely thing that I want to relate now is Shelley was able to, through the help of the Baha'i community, return to South Africa for the last six weeks of her life in 2003. 
That's where she wanted to be. That's where her heart was. Three days before she died, there were a number of young, recently converted Baha'i Africans sitting around her bed. And she smiled at them and she said, well, you know, in a little while, I'll be your ancestor. And you won't even have to kill a chicken to talk to me. I thought having a sense of humor when you are at that point about to say farewell to the world, that's what I want. And I think we all could want that for our lives. So consider from a death sentence to loving and embracing life to the very last moment, drinking the nectar of it. That's what's possible. Amen.